This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. More details have come out about Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson's role in efforts to change the outcome of the 2020 election. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that hours before the U.S. Capitol was stormed by Trump supporters on January 6th, Johnson got a message from former Dane County Judge James Troupas, who has also represented the Trump campaign in Wisconsin. Troupas had asked Johnson to hand deliver a document to Vice President Mike Pence that falsely claimed the state's electoral votes should go to Trump. Johnson's chief of staff, Sean Riley, reached out to the vice president's staff on behalf of Troopus, but was told not to give the document to Pence. Earlier this week, Johnson claimed that he had no knowledge of what documents his staff had attempted to deliver. Former Supreme Court Justice and GOP election investigator Michael Gableman appeared in court again today, testifying that he had deleted records relevant to his probe into the 2020 election. The Associated Press reports that Gableman, who was held in contempt of court last week for not turning over records relating to his investigation, was more cooperative today compared to previous hearings in Dane County Court. Gableman revealed today during questioning that he spent the early parts of his investigation using a computer at a Milwaukee area library and had used his own personal email address before he was issued a government address. He also talked about a South Dakota conference he attended last year, organized by election conspiracy theorist Mike Lindell, a.k.a. the MyPillow guy. Gableman said in court today he was disappointed by, quote, the lack of substance to back up claims presented at the conference, which he attended as part of his official investigation. So far, Gableman's investigation has cost taxpayers more than a million dollars and has revealed no widespread fraud in Wisconsin's 2020 presidential election. Wisconsin Democrats are holding their 2022 convention this weekend in La Crosse. This year's theme, Doing What's Right for Wisconsin, in Dems will highlight the work of Governor Tony Evers and other state Democrats and what they've done for the state. Another main theme of this year's convention is defeating Ron Johnson in the U.S. Senate race this November. The convention runs on Saturday and Sunday and will be held at the La Crosse Convention Center. Everyone hide your honey as sightings of black bears have been on the rise in southeast Wisconsin. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that is due to the rise in black bear population in Wisconsin, as well as an increase in wooded habitats in southern Wisconsin. The Department of Natural Resources estimated that there are around 24,000 bears throughout the state. Don't be alarmed, as the bears pose a fairly low risk to humans as long as they avoid antagonizing or cornering the bear. Did the DNR say that to avoid any unwanted encounters, you should either remove or properly secure any attractants such as pet food, bird feeders, or grills? And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,731 confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin yesterday, with an average of 1,419 cases reported each day over the past week. An average of 11.6% of all COVID tests have come back positive over the past week as well. There were six new confirmed deaths from the virus in Wisconsin yesterday, bringing the state total of 
13,111 people who have died from the virus. Here in Dane County, there were 255 confirmed COVID cases yesterday, with 64 people still hospitalized from the virus. There were no new recorded deaths in Dane County yesterday. And now on to today's top stories. Earlier this year, Alliant Energy announced their plans to close their last two coal power plants in Wisconsin by the end of 2024. But after a report suggesting potential power shortages next summer, Alliant and other power companies will be keeping coal plants open a little longer. WORT reporter Nate Wiggyhout has the story. Alliant Energy and the We Energy Group announced today that they are pushing back plans to close three coal power plants in Wisconsin for at least two years. Those plants are the Edgewater Generating Station in Sheboygan and the Columbia Energy Center plant in Portage. Both of those are operated by Alliant Energy, as well as the South Oak Creek plant in Oak Creek, which is operated by We Energies. David DeLeon is the president of Alliant Energy's Wisconsin Utility. He says that the delay will still allow them to close both of their plants by June 2026. We are um, at Alliant Energy, we're adjusting the timing of our Wisconsin-based generation retirements because we want to bolster that reliability as we transition to cleaner energy futures. This will affect that adjusted timing will allow our company some flexibility beyond 2022 to manage our regional capacity and supply chain challenges as we move forward with adding solar and other resources to diversify our energy mix. The Columbia Energy Plant was originally scheduled to close at the end of 2024, while the Edgewater Plant was scheduled to close by the end of this year. We Energy says that they are delaying their plans for closure for the same reasons, supply chain and regional capacity issues of power in Wisconsin. Brendan Conway with We Energy says that this will not put a major strain on their own transition to clean energy. You know, we're focused on affordable, reliable and clean energy for our customers. So um, we need to make sure that, yes, we're transitioning away from fossil fuels, but if there's nothing there to replace it, it's not going to be ready. Um, it's, it would not be prudent and wouldn't have that reliability that our customers need on. So uh, that is what, uh, what, what these delays are, are. And it's, I think, important to note these are just delays. We still um, expect to be able to reach our real aggressive environmental goals, including uh, reducing carbon emissions 80% by 2030. We Energy still plans to close the South Oak Creek plant in 2024, one year later than originally scheduled. Both groups have already committed to eliminating the use of coal in Wisconsin. Alliant Energy has been working to open six new solar farms in Wisconsin, including the Yahara Solar Farm, which held its groundbreaking ceremony yesterday in Cottage Grove. We Energies already has 10 solar and wind farms across the state, with the Badger Hollow Solar Park expected to become the 11th next year. The announcement comes after power grid operators warned earlier this month of potential energy shortages in Wisconsin in the summer of 2023. The Mid-Continent Independent System Operator, or MISO, is a nonprofit organization monitoring energy usage in the upper Midwest. They say that, unless changes are made soon, Wisconsin will not have the energy capacity to meet demand by next summer. But not everyone is on board with the delay. Renew Wisconsin is a nonprofit organization that promotes renewable energy across the state. 
They say that the power shortage is just more proof that renewable energy is needed now more than ever. Michael Vickerman is the policy director with Renew. He says that we should look at solar power from a smaller scale to help reduce these delays. Utilities are predisposed to uh, pursue large-scale projects, um, and that is fine. We need them. We also need the smaller projects, and we need the rooftop projects, um, and we need solar power transportation. And so um, hopefully we'll uh, do a better job of not putting all of our clean energy eggs in the utilities basket. Vickerman also says he thinks Wisconsin's energy supply will not be in much danger next year. We had, uh, we've had we had a couple of hot days in the last uh, two weeks, and um, the system handled that whatever additional load was uh, triggered by the uh, hotter than uh, normal temperatures without a hitch, without a hiccup. So uh, I would take those uh, warnings as being there may be uh, pockets within uh, within the Midwest that might be capacity short. Wisconsin's not one of them. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service recently announced it would be phasing out its policy permitting the use of lead ammunition on public lands. One Wisconsin wildlife rehabilitator hopes the move will spur similar actions on public lands across the state. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. Lead ammo fractures into small particles when fired into an animal, says Mark Naniot with the Rhinelander-based wildlife rehabilitation organization Wild Instincts. That means lead-contaminated meat can then be consumed by hunters and scavengers. They ingest these tiny little lead particles, and all it takes is one or two almost microscopic particles to cause lead poisoning. Naniot says Wisconsin's Conservation Congress, which acts as an advisory committee to the Department of Natural Resources, has voted on lead ammo regulations in the past, although it has never approved such policies. While there's no current ban, the DNR recommends against using lead-based ammo and angling gear, also citing concerns over lead poisoning. This is Jonah Chester reporting. Yesterday, Madison Water Utility released their annual water quality report. The report lays out all different pollutants that could live in Madison water supply, including PFAS chemicals. WORT reporter Emily Kaysinger has more. The Madison Water Utility has issued their annual water quality report for 2021. The report shows that higher than advised quantities of PFAS were found in 11 of the city's 21 active wells. PFAS are a family of forever chemicals that are scientifically linked to higher rates of cancer, decreased fertility, and developmental issues in children. Joe Grandy is the water quality manager of the Madison Water Utility, where he leads the utility's response to drinking water contaminants. He cautions that detection doesn't necessarily mean health concern. Just because a substance is detected does not necessarily mean that there, that there is a problem or that, there's, that it's a health-related issue. We're regulated by the US EPA and the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, and we're regulated under the Safe Drinking Water Act. And under the Safe Drinking Water Act, there are regulations called the maximum contaminant level. That's the acceptable level, safe level of a contaminant in drinking water. So if we have a detection of a chemical that is uh, below that uh, MCL or that maximum contaminant level, Um, it's been determined that that is not a problem. The Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources has set the standard for acceptable levels of PFAS at 70 parts per trillion. According to the Water Quality Report, 
all 11 active wells where PFAS was detected fall below that threshold, meaning that by Wisconsin standards, the water is safe to drink. While there are no enforceable federal standards for PFAS, earlier this month, the EPA issued new health advisory levels for PFAS contamination. For PFOA, it is 0.004 parts per trillion. For PFOS, it is 0.02 parts per trillion. Levels under this are deemed safe. Madison's reported levels are 20 to 100 times higher than those EPA levels. Grandy says the water utility is still reviewing these new advisories. And with that comes challenges. Those, those new health advisories uh, just came out last week. And they are orders of magnitude, thousands or even tens of thousands times smaller than um, what the previous health advisory or the health guidance was. So um, we're still digesting that. Um, But the good news is, is that that is the preliminary step towards EPA establishing a uh, a formal uh, drinking water standard. The federal EPA is making billions of dollars of grant funding available to communities on the front lines of PFAS contamination. Grandy says Madison plans to apply for funds to help reopen Well 15, which has been shut down since 2019 due to high levels of PFAS. Recently, the water utility hired a consultant to develop preliminary designs for a PFAS treatment facility at the well. So yes, we do have plans to apply uh, for that federal funding specifically for PFAS treatment at Well 15. A lot of the work that we've done on PFAS in terms of monitoring and closely tracking that issue has really positioned us in a really good place um, to, to be able to get some federal funding uh, for, our, for our treatment plant at Well 15. The Madison Water Utility will hold a community listening session about Well 15 next Thursday, June 30th, at the East Madison Community Center from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Emily Kaysinger. It's now 6.21 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. As Wisconsin prepares for the fall of the landmark Roe vs. Wade court decision and the abortion ban trigger law that will hit Wisconsin when that happens, Planned Parenthood of Illinois is getting ready for a wave of new patients from around the country. Yesterday, WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout spoke with Bridget Leahy, the vice president of public policy at Planned Parenthood Illinois, about how they are preparing for the influx of patients. Now, yesterday we aired a portion of their conversation, and here's the entire interview. With the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade any day and Wisconsin immediately reverting back to our 173-year-old ban once that happens, not everyone is sitting idle. I'm joined on the other end of the line by Bridget Leahy with Planned Parenthood of Illinois. Bridget, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me. Thank you for having me here. So just just starting things off here, Bridget, uh, looking at 
you know, once Roe is overturned or if Roe is overturned, I guess we still have to say that. Uh, are, are you expecting an influx of out-of-state patients uh, once that happens? What, what do you think that's going to look like for Planned Parenthood Illinois? Yes, we are expecting a surge of out-of-state patients because we know Illinois is surrounded by states that once Roe is overturned, that access to abortion will be cut off almost immediately. And so we have been preparing for a number of years, and we've been doing it on the policy side with legislation that guarantees Illinois will protect reproductive rights. In 2019, Illinois actually enshrined reproductive rights in our state law, and uh, your decisions about reproductive health care, including abortion, will be protected by Illinois law. In addition, Planned Parenthood has been looking at where health centers are in Illinois and preparing to make sure that health centers can welcome patients from everywhere, from Illinois as well as from other states like Wisconsin. So just a couple of years ago during the pandemic, we opened our health center in Waukegan, Illinois, which is very close to the Wisconsin border. And we did that not only because there is a need in the community there in Lake County in Illinois, but also knowing that Wisconsin patients will need somewhere to go uh, if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And then is Wisconsin the only state that's surrounding Illinois that has a abortion ban or something similar to that where you are expecting uh, any sort of influx? No, actually, most states that border Illinois will be um, enacting a trigger law or some sort of pre-existing ban that has been uh, enjoined and not enforced since Roe v. Wade. One state that will need to take action is Indiana. They do not have anything on the books right now, but their governor has promised a special session in order to enact some sort of ban. So we do expect uh, that... Patients will start coming to us within days. We learned this when Texas banned abortion after six weeks. Our first patients from Texas fleeing that very restrictive law arrived in Illinois just two days after it came into effect. So we are gearing up, we are preparing, and we want people in Wisconsin and all of the states in the Midwest who are going to be cut off from care to understand that Planned Parenthood is here for them and that we will do everything possible to make sure that they get the care that they need. And you mentioned that you're preparing there. What sort of things are you doing right now to prepare for the uh, influx of patients uh, you imagine coming in? So one of the things is we have been working with our sister affiliates in other states. Uh, For example, we have been having conversations for months now with the affiliate that has a health center and provides abortion services in Madison. How can we coordinate and help make sure that that patients get appointments, uh, that there is continuity of care, those kinds of things? We have been looking at our internal capacity. How can we expand and provide more appointments to make them available for abortion uh, for patients? Because we know that we're going to see, you know, twenty to thirty thousand additional patients coming to Illinois. 
So we've been looking at that. We are also looking at, at the governmental side. And while uh, Wisconsin had a special session, Indiana is going to have a special session, our General Assembly is actually talking about a special session, but to do the opposite, to look at the kinds of protections that providers need, as well as ways that they can ensure that we have access in, in Illinois to build capacity um, and make sure that patients can get where they are. Uh, lastly, I want to give an important plug to local abortion funds. These organizations have been around for decades, and they have been providing the practical and logistical support to patients who are forced to travel. And we have some great funds in Illinois, but we know there are funds in other states. And it is important for people to support those funds so that patients who suddenly their cost of getting an abortion is now um, the cost is increased because they're traveling. So they have to now figure out gas money or airfare or a hotel room or childcare. These abortion funds are critical in assisting patients who have to go from one state to the other. And if they don't have the resources, those patients may not have the ability to travel. And we must remember that the bans on abortion will affect those who are most vulnerable and those who are already at risk of, at, of not being able to get health care in general. I'm talking about uh, black people, Latinx people, LGBTQ folks, folks who are having trouble making ends meet, um, people with other barriers such as disabilities or um, immigrants who don't speak English, all of these things can challenge folks, and providing that extra financial support is key for them to be able to get the care that they need. Bridget, do you have just <laughs> any, any final thoughts of anything that you'd like to share with me? I think it's really important to understand that when Roe falls, it's not the end of the story. We should look at it as the beginning of the next chapter. We have to keep up this fight. In states where access is being cut off, elections are more critical than ever, and people need to get out and vote. They need to talk to their elected officials, and they need to let them know that the majority of people want abortion to be safe and legal. They think it is unconscionable to force someone to travel hundreds of miles out of state to get this care. And so keep up the fight wherever you are. Do not view uh, the fall of Roe and abortion being restricted in your state as the end. See it as the start of your activism to make your voice heard. I've been talking with Bridget Leahy with Planned Parenthood Illinois about how the organization is preparing for the outright ban of abortions here in Wisconsin. Bridget, thank you so much for your kind words and for talking with me here today. Okay, thank you. And I appreciate you reaching out for the interview. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton, here with fellow host Stacey Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. Every other Thursday, our contributor, Jonah Chester, sits down with Tom Kamenek, president of the Wisconsin Transparency Project, to discuss open records and open government for a segment we call Transparency Talk. The topic this week 
requesting records for investigations. Now, two quick notes. This conversation isn't specific legal advice, so please seek an attorney's assistance if you have difficulty with open records or open government. And this segment first aired last September. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line for our every other week roundup of open government news, open government uh, debate, open government knowledge. Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you doing this week? Good. For a sec, I thought you were going to say open government nonsense, and I figured, well, that's you actually know, what I deal with a lot here. Tom, some, there is there is a lot of open government nonsense happening in the world at any given time. That's why you exist, and that's why we have this segment, so we can help people cut through that nonsense and figure out what records you're entitled to and what you're entitled to know about what your government is going uh, going and doing out there, you know. That's an important part of a democracy. Anyway, I digress. Let's go ahead and jump right in. We got an interesting topic to cover today. We are covering records of investigations. Now, Tom, I understand you frequently get calls from people who are seeking records of investigations and getting denials. Why is that? Yeah, this is a really regular sort of occurrence for me. It's a very common complaint I get. And I, th- I think what's going on here is that the- these are areas that people are very interested in. In particular, it's investigations into government employees, in particular, the police officers who have committed misconduct. Uh, there's just some reporting from Wisconsin Watch about how trouble police officers frequently just get shifted around between uh, different police departments and people aren't really aware of it because it's so hard to get these records. And the other one is teachers. You know, very frequently you'll see a a quiet notice that a teacher has left in the middle of the year with no explanation and that often sends off a flurry of record requests into what went on. And very often I get calls and emails from people saying I requested these records and they won't give me anything. Hmm. Now, tell me about the exemption policies for investigatory records. What What's the background here we should know? Contrary to what many custodians claim, there is no blanket exemption for investigatory or disciplinary records. I constantly see these denials that say something like, well, this is an ongoing investigation and can't be turned over, or this is personnel disciplinary files and can't be turned over. Anything like that is highly likely to be an illegal denial, so people should reach out to me if they get that. Now, walk me through some of the types of investigatory records that can be withheld. Yeah, there are some that can, and they're set out pretty well in statute. So first of all, current investigations of employees are a black box. So there's a part of the open records law that says that there's an exemption for, quote, information relating to the current investigation of a possible criminal offense or possible misconduct connected with employment by an employee and prior to disposition of the investigation. So there's a couple keys there. First of all, it has to be current. This only applies to ongoing investigations before they have wrapped up. Second, this has to be an employee. It does not apply to elected officials, which I've seen custodians try to do, and it doesn't apply to external investigations. So most of these for example, law enforcement uh, investigations of potential crimes committed by somebody other than a, a police officer, those kind of investigations are not subject to this exemption. Hmm. Number two, so first exemption is for current investigations of employees. 
Number two, there is a rule saying that if release of a record would interfere with an ongoing investigation, so this is for external investigations, usually with law enforcement, if release would interfere, they can withhold the records. So supposedly this should be something that is like, the target doesn't know they're being investigated yet. And you don't want to make that public because they will abscond or flee or destroy evidence or stop cooperating, something like that. Or it might interfere if there is uh, some secret investigative techniques that are being used that aren't publicly known yet. And that, uh, you know, criminals, potential criminals would know how to avoid if that was known. So the, those are the two kind of things they should be looking at. But unfortunately, I see custodians raise this a lot just to deny blanket, uh, in a blanket manner, all ongoing investigations. But this is supposed to be record by record. So they should theoretically be looking at one document at a time and saying, can I share this? Or would this, this record, this particular record right here, interfere with something that would let me keep, uh, keep it secret? Now, at what point do I need to lawyer up? At what point do I reach out to you? You know, if you get a response that says, we are denying access to these records, we are denying your request because of an investigation, contact me. There's a very good chance that that sort of denial, that blanket denial is unlawful. Hmm. Now, there's a case, there's an investigation uh, that I'd like to run by you because it has it has some open government experts here in Wisconsin scratching their head. Now, over the course of the past few years, details have come to light about two hidden camera investigations at uh, the Madison Metropolitan School District. If listeners want to hear more, they should check out Dylan Brogan's reporting on Isthmus. He's done a lot of coverage of this. But essentially, in both of those cases, MMSD conducted an internal investigation into these hidden cameras that had in one place placed by a teacher and in one case been placed by actual MMSD administrators. And then when parents asked and and members of the community asked for those records, MMSD essentially said, sorry, it's an internal investigation. We can't release it. Now, some of those records were later accidentally released to Mrs. Dylan Brogan, but that was an accident. I I, I don't think (laughs) they did that one on purpose. So what's your take on that? How can MMSD say this is an internal investigation? What's protecting them in that case? They are jumping through all kinds of hoops to find an out for themselves to keep as much of the secret as possible. And it's really horrible what they're doing because the public really should know about what exactly happened. How did they investigate it? How did they find out uh, everything that's going on there? But what they're doing, and, and just to go back for a second, based on what I just said, it would seem like these should be releasable because... There's no blanket exemption for investigatory records. The rec- the investigation is done. It's completed. It wouldn't interfere with anything. But what they did is the Madison School District decided to spend a whole lot more money to have a law firm and lawyers do this investigation and write this report. And at that point, they get to say, oh, we're not actually relying on the investigation exemptions. We're actually relying on attorney-client privilege because ah. this is communications between us and our, uh, our, our counsel of choice. And there is some case law that supports that kind of argument. I would say that while it may protect opinions from the lawyers, if the lawyers say, well, you know, here's what you, here are your options for how to deal with this. Here's your potential liability. If you fire the person, you know, the risk that you might get, get sued for unlawful termination or something like that. 
or how to deal with the union, those kind of advice things should be, or at least can be withheld. But it's very different when the lawyer is just being hired to do an investigation of facts that happen hmm. and could and talk to witnesses. So I really wish these kinds of things would be released and that government entities couldn't rely on this kind of cheaty way to spend a whole lot more money just to keep the public from seeing this. Now, how common is that for, for a governmental body or an entity to bring on an attorney to conduct this, these investigations, these internal investigations, just so they have that added layer of protection from people, uh, records requesting or open government requesting? I don't think open government requesting is proper grammar, but essentially trying to get access to these documents. How common is that? It didn't used to be very common at all, uh, but it's there's been an uptick in the past year or so of, of places doing this because they realize they can get around things with it, get away with something. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there because we are out of time for this episode. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over there at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, as always, thanks for sitting down with me this week. No problem, Jonah. It's been uh, always good to do this. And remember, if you don't ask, you won't know. A program to support businesses during the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic is here to stay. The Madison City Council is making permanent the Streetery program, which allows restaurants to use public space for outdoor dining. The new licenses, though, come with conditions and, of course, paperwork. For more on the paperwork process, Thursday Buzz host Tony Castaneda spoke with Saran Oak, the city's Office of Business Resources Manager. Can you just give us a basic overview, first of all, of uh, Madison Streetery program, um, how it came about, and and where we are right now? Now, the City of Council, of course, just approved the Streetery program to go again for uh, this summer, this year. Can you explain uh, uh, what the program is about, first of all? Yes, of course, absolutely. And the streetery program really just started out because of COVID. Um, you know, a couple years back with all the emergency orders and restaurants having to shut down, um, you know, and then just public safety as well. Um, and so what came about was the streetery program so that restaurants and cafes could operate outside. Um, and, and of course, you know, customers and people were just more that they felt more safe being outside than than indoors, right? And so, mm-hmm. um, a couple years ago, it was just under an emergency order. Restaurants and cafes were pretty much just kind of allowed to operate, um, and it wasn't there weren't any um, requirements or any um, restrictions or anything like that. It was just an emergency order, so that staff could just quickly approve you know, people to operate on the sidewalks um, and roadways. And then uh, so this year, the street vending staff and then Common Council approve a permanent streetery program. Um, And so there's a couple applications where it's a sidewalk cafe and then a roadway cafe application. So sidewalk are um, the cafes that are just strictly on, you know, the sidewalk terrace. And then the roadway cafes are those who want to operate out on the street, um, parking, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so this year was the first year that it became a permanent program. And then it became um, also there was an application, an official application process through an online system. And so it was new to everyone, right? So it was new to city staff. Um, and then it was new to uh, restaurant operators and filling out and completing the application properly. Mm-hmm. 
Now, uh, can we say uh, safely say that during the pandemic, though, uh, especially when you know, it was really happening heavy and uh, there were mask uh, restrictions and whatever, and also limitations on how many people could be inside a building, was it just kind of like, hey, anybody wants to set something up, go ahead and do it, uh, put some chairs and tables outside, we're not really going to come by and, uh, um, well, uh, you know, uh, with a tape ruler and, and make sure that you're within this many feet from the street or anything like that. Is that essentially yeah, how it started were, off? There were some um, restrictions, just making sure that it was safe, you know, so that there there were some parts of the city where the cafes were very close to the street. So, you know, our street monitor had to come in and just make sure that it was safe. Um, but it was really relaxed. Um, we We didn't want to not allow anyone to, to operate. Right. I mean, this was a really important, um, I mean, it was, you know, people's business. Like, they, they needed to open outdoors since they couldn't open inside. Um, but, yeah, we were a little bit more relaxed the last couple years. Um, so so now, so. though, things have changed. Even though the city says, go ahead, we can do it again, but everybody's now, these restrictions are going to come into full play, and you got to fill out several applications now, and you got to go through several hearings and several different committees and boards. Is that true? Who do you have to go through now to be allowed to have uh, an outdoor patio? Sure. It depends on the restaurant and the, the type of cafe. If you're just a restaurant just looking to expand to the sidewalk, it's really just one application, um, which is the sidewalk um, application. Um, if you're looking to expand um, into the roadway, it's the roadway cafe application. But then there also are restaurants that are, you know, serving alcohol, and so now that will have to go through the alcohol process. And those are where it actually has to get approved through um, the committee for that, the, the Alcohol License Review Committee. Um, but if it's just a sidewalk cafe or a roadway cafe there's no committee it's just city staff approving the application we just have to make sure that the measurements are correct Um, we have to contact our traffic engineering and parking to make sure that they properly close off the roadway just to make sure it's safe for cars to not you know drive into these cafes and um, Mm -hmm. so yeah so those two applications um, it's really just one um, depending on your your cafe but then if you want an alcohol license if you want music that's where other applications may come into play right and uh, not to put the blame on you but I I know that there have been uh, some bars and restaurants that have been waiting a while now for approval why is there a backlog of uh, applications uh, for some of these bars and restaurants sure yeah and i I think it really just started with um you know uh, this is a new system um and so it's it's new to to everyone and then uh, we did have a delay with the common council approval there was a date that we were supposed to get it introduced and approved but that was canceled and so that delayed it by a couple weeks um and then of course technology you know with the application being submitted you know there was some technical glitches and things like that so that had to get fixed as well so just a few things that just kind of made it delayed even further right and then of course um, you are asking a lot of places like to go through their neighborhood associations also to get approval from them uh, if they want to expand on their outdoor seating areas that's true too right so I'm only, um, if, if maybe that could be in the private uh, property. Mm-hmm. Um, so our office just works with the, the right-of-way, so public spaces, so the streets and sidewalks. So that, that goes through us. It's not the Neighborhood Association. Okay. 
All right. Well, uh, what do you think about uh, this backlog? When do you think that a, a, a lot of these uh, bars and restaurants that want to uh, have the outdoor seating again, like they had during the pandemic, do you uh, feel that this is uh, going to be cleared up soon? We, we definitely hope so. Um, if, if you're a sidewalk operator um, and, and you're just on this, the, the sidewalk, definitely reach out to me, um, email me, because what we're doing right now, because of the backlog, we are just letting operators just go ahead and operate their cafe if it's on the sidewalk, as long as they have their application and, and a, um, insurance, you know, because we want to make sure mm-hmm. that they're insured. So we're just allowing those cafes to to operate as long as they have their application and and certificate of insurance so they could email me and and just check on the status of their application and we'll we're now just allowing folks to operate until we get through this backlog uh the ones that are on the roadway that may take a little bit longer because we're having to talk to traffic engineering and parking it's it's not just one cafe it's it's several right Mm -hmm. so we want they want to make sure that the whole block is is properly uh closed for all of the cafes that want to to be out on the street all right i'm glad that you're uh, asking people if they are having uh, some issues or questions about uh, the street reprogram and and the permitting of that to email you but what is your email yes of course so <laughs> it's um us as in saran o-u-k at cityofmadison.com well that's pretty easy s-o-u-k at cityofmadison.com all right yes. we've been speaking with saran oak uh, and talking a little bit about the uh, street reprogram and um well uh but a lot of places uh, have said that they've, uh, I know a couple bars, I'm not going to mention any names, but they're kind of afraid. I was like, hey, well, why don't you come on the radio and talk about it? And they were afraid because they're afraid that the city would get mad at them for complaining about uh, 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 not getting approved for their uh, outdoor seating area. I'm not, So I'm not going to name any names of, of these bars or bar owners. Oh, but, yeah, and, uh, and they could reach out to me and, and, and feel free. We're, you know, we, we understand their frustration. So if, if they contact me and, and we see that they're further enough along in the, the process, we could help them get quickly approved. I'm going to let them know that. So yes, that they can do. so they can quit complaining to me all the time about <laughs> it. So, well, uh, Saran, thank you very much uh, for for clearing up uh, a lot of things. Boy, I've learned a lot today. Yeah. Wonderful, yeah. Thank you for having me. All right, Saran, thank you very much, Saran Oak. Again, she's with uh, the City of Madison in the Business Resources and Economic Development Department. She's the uh, Office of Business Resources. It's 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. In Sewing 101, local artist and retired educator Joe Jensen gave us a list of tools necessary to begin the first of, hopefully, many sewing projects. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Jensen helps contributor Jennifer Fields pick out a pattern. Well, hmm, good question. Um, I think if you haven't sewn for a while, 
why, why overcomplicate things? Do something fast and easy, just to give yourself a taste. Like uh, this one has like, this one appears to be pretty simple. Know, let's flip it over and look at it, yeah. Because it's like just one piece. There aren't any tucks and stuff. This this one here is, is that called an A-line? I forget, princess. Yes, princess, princess seams. Yes, princess seams. This one gets to be more complex because that part that goes around the breast here, that you got a baste and everything, otherwise you get puckers and it looks nasty. And this is the other thing that beginning sewers need to know is you gotta iron. You gotta iron, because if you don't iron, it's gonna look like you made it. And you wanna make stuff that people say, where did you get that? They say, oh, did you make that? You know, because there's a kind of a difference. Like oh, if, there is. You know, if somebody knows that you're really super duper seamstress and they say, oh, did you make that? It's probably because they, they know of your skill. But if they don't know that you sew it, they ask you it's kind of like, nerd -da -da. yeah, I did this in my class. Oh, yeah, I learned that the hard way because I just did not want to iron a seam. And then I had to line mm -hmm. what I was making. And I had to take it all apart because once I lined it, you could see that that seam hadn't been ironed on the inside flat. And it just looked like, it looked like I had wrinkled it on purpose and then just sewn on top of the wrinkles. Yeah, th this, this one... You know, you're curvy, and you're going to have to, that, that, is, that is complex, getting that so that it lays and it looks nice, because you don't, you want it to, to drape your shape and look good and hot, and not just. I don't want it to look no. like I bought it. I want I it to know. look like it was made for me. Yeah, you, you want it, like, nobody's seen something like that before, and it's really cool, like that, that color that I, man, you know, what place, it's 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 that's what you want you want you you want fascination with it and like kind of a little envy on the other person Ooh, that's so nice you know you don't want somebody going look at look, she made it you know she made that she thinks she looks good well she just rolled out of bed and started that machine she looks ridiculous yeah, so anyway, that some of this one's real simple because it's basically three pieces. Two pieces. Check Maybe this one, one out though. Piece. That's a reversible. Wow. That that one's pretty simple to Oh, I see how that is. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. And so, those that's like two pieces. This those two would be very simple to make. Anything that's got like um, like pleats and darts and stuff like that, that's going to be a little more complex. There aren't really too many of those in here. As you can this see, without this. giving it away, I'm going mm -hmm. for a certain style here mm -hmm. that I think would be would have some simplicity to it to start to get started again, but mm -hmm. would also have like a style. Yeah, th this one in particular caught my eye. That that one's really nice and. And this, where, where is that one that I was looking at? Oh, this one, is it this one here? This one, this one, I was, you know, with the different fabrics you have This here. one's going to be this fabric and this fabric. This one? Yep, it's going to be this on the top, this on the bottom. And I don't know which one I'm going to use for pockets. I might use this one for the pockets. Yeah, I was seeing like this, the top, this for the pockets, and then this on the bottom. 
Well, here's the thing. <laughs> no, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. I have bought so much of this fabric that there would, I can at least get two pieces out of all this stuff. And mm-hmm. as you can see, without giving it away, if you mm-hmm. kind of look at the overall of what I'm going for, mm-hmm. all this stuff becomes interchangeable. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Having, collecting all of this fabric, I really want to make sure that I, how can I say this? I want the quality of the work to honor the quality of the fabric. Mm-hmm. If that makes any sense at all. Oh, you bet. And that's just it. It's kind of like if you if you spend a lot of money on a, on fabric or a particular selection of yard goods, you don't want to muck it up because it it's it's sad to see that go to waste. So, you know, it's it's just using caution, understanding how to read it, understanding how to cut it. And the thing is with old patterns you used to buy them in a specific size okay you would buy a size 12 or 14 or whatever and it would come with you could see on the pattern how wide they w- were suggesting you make your seam okay so joe we're gonna pick the first pattern to be attempted and choose well because you're probably gonna end up helping me do this well, hmm, it's summertime, and most of these are summertime clothing things. Um, shoot, I, I don't know. It's kind of like, you're, what would you like to have? I like that one. I do like that one, and those two are my favorite fabrics. Let's do that one. Okay. Okay. Did you make that? <laughs> oh, you made that, didn't you? That's cute. Oh, that one of my worst words, cute. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at 6. Your reporter tonight was Emily K. Singer with Cameron Costanzo working on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, Jennifer Fields, and Tony Castaneda. Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Ms. Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. And I'm your host, Stacey Harbaugh. Hey, you don't have to miss an episode of WORT's local news. Hear it on the WART app archives or get it as a podcast wherever you subscribe. Up next is the Perpetual Notion Machine. Good night.